You were tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii's tourism industry is at a crossroads. It is rebounding faster than anyone expected, and the state is poised to change who's in the driver's seat for its marketing to North America and how we manage visitors. We are still hand-rigging over the problem of over-tourism. This morning, we talked to Frank Haas, one of several hospitality consultants we've been hearing from this week. Haas previously worked at the Hawaii Tourism Authority and has had the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau as a client. Haas is currently on a transition team of the Kilohana Collective, a hui organized under the winning bidder, the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. He says he agreed to get involved uh, to help them succeed. Haas says he wrote the strategic assessment for the group and hopes to help people understand the procurement process. How did we get to this point with a possible second challenge to the award of a $34 million tourism contract? Well, if you recall, before the pandemic, Hawaii was on track to exceed the $10 million mark for visitors, and the pushback spurred the Hawaii Tourism Authority to create a strategic plan to try and stem that. It is in the process of implementing what's known as DMAPs, Destination Management Action Plans. Here's Haas. There's a lot of concern about change, and, and uh, change is always scary, and it's, it's difficult. What I'm seeing is a process that started with the situation that Hawaii is in. We were seeing uh, the uh, growth of tourism to the point where uh, there are people in the community that are concerned about it. You've had many people in segments on your program talking about the impacts of tourism, and HTA HTA measures resident sentiment, and we've all certainly seen uh, anecdotes about um, uh, too many people on beaches, too much traffic, and and some other things. So... That's really been an issue that HTA has uh, has worked to address, and the way they uh, attempt to address it is is through the, the, their planning process. Uh, what they did that was very significant was a, a very different sort of um, strategic plan in 2020 that was developed with a lot of community input and uh, was adopted by the board in uh, January of 2020. It was very different in the respect that it uh, put a lot more emphasis on um, uh, areas of the HTA that were other than marketing. Uh, they talked about rebalancing the, the, the uh, activities of, of um, the HTA to put more emphasis on community and natural resources and, and Hawaiian culture. And um, that, that was significant. It was, uh, it, it's certainly not the first uh, strategic plan for HTA, but it's the first one that, that had that, that sort of approach. Coming out of that, um, they didn't let, let that plan sit on the shelf. There's a lot of things that flowed from it, including this RFP. Um, one of the first things that came out of the strategic plan were these destination management action plans. Uh, and so they went to the communities and they said, what are the issues in the community that we need to address? Um, and now they have one established for each island, and those are underway. So when it came time to review the um, contract for the U.S. marketing, the RFP that was issued was very different, and it reflects what was in the strategic plan. The strategic plan calls for developing an integrated destination marketing uh, management system, and certainly marketing as a part of that, but um, it really saw the interplay between community, Hawaiian culture, natural resources, and marketing. So just to and clarify, the, so just to clarify, so this is not just a marketing contract, it's a marketing and managing management. In fact, it's been mischaracterized as a marketing contract. It is if the the RFP itself says it is destination management and US marketing. And we are and still in the is, we are still in the throes of the DMAP process. Yes, throughout the state. We are Yes, and that you know, this is a, it's a long process. We're not going to change the nature of tourism and, and address its impacts overnight. So what this RFP meant to do was to continue that process by uh, having an agency that was responsible for both the marketing and the destination management. That was very different. That's never happened before. And that was very deliberate uh, coming out of the strategic plan. Okay. So point of clarification. So that RFP, are you talking about the first go around? Um, that went out back in the fall, or the most recent one? Both of them. They both they were both uh, written to combine marketing and uh, destination management for the first time, and that reflects the uh, direction of the strategic plan. And so, help 
me understand this. So with the second RFP, though, it wasn't just the same bid that went out, the bid specs. The second time, it was a, it was modified. It was modified, but the essence of the uh, the, the, the guts of it, the, 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 the direction of it was the same. It was those two key elements, destination management and U.S. marketing. And they were looking for one proposer, one bidder, who could do both of those things. Okay. And then under the process, though, two of the losing vendors teamed up and came back as the Kilohana plan, right, under this uh, hui that would be under the council. Right. And they they are actually two different RFPs. So it's very possible uh, with that second RFP, which is different than the first RFP, for... uh, for them to rethink their approach, to rethink their uh, alliances and partnerships. And that's uh, apparently what what happened because uh, CNHA uh, added some some partners, changed some of the the people that were working on it, and that's perfectly consistent with the new RFP. The practice of changing the RFPs, is that something that happens often? No, this this is pretty unusual, uh, but uh, it's not unheard of. But the state determined that the first uh, process was uh, was not going to proceed, and th- therefore they pulled it and uh, issued a new RFP. So the new RFP was basically starting over again. And if anyone was concerned about the RFP, there's a provision in the RFP, and it's, it's the provision in most RFPs for the state, or if not all of them, that if you want to protest the RFP itself, you have the opportunity to do that. And you can lodge a protest, but once the once you get to the submission date, you simply have to respond to the terms and conditions and requirements and specifications that are that are in the RFP. So if anyone was concerned, they had that opportunity to at least say we don't like this RFP. It, it proceeded, and once again, once you get past the submission date, it is it is what it is. What we saw happen here with the losing vendors and teaming up with each other to bid on the second RFP. I mean, that's a little unusual too, isn't it? Well, a whole second RFP is unusual, but it is a new RFP, so it's there's nothing to say you can't rethink the way you want to approach it. Okay, so there's nothing legally that would prevent that in the bid process? No, if you wanted to take an entirely new direction, that would be your prerogative as well. What else do you think um, listeners need to understand as we kind of work through some of these issues? Clearly, what the HTA wants is to start to address the, the, the long-term underlying issues of managing this destination. And so they, they need to look at what the process was and say, is the process set up to uh, evaluate all of the conditions that are laid out in the RFP, which are twofold? One is the destination management piece and one is the marketing piece. Both are important. I mean, my background is marketing. We need to market this destination. It's uh, it's important. We need to uh, clarify to the world how different we are and, and, and make the case that we're a world-class uh, place to come and experience what we have here. But it's equally important from the point of uh, Hawaii Tourism Authority to make sure that we're taking care of the community because tourism is unique in the fact that it takes place in the community. So you, you can't just say we're going to do marketing in a vacuum. It happens and it it interacts with uh, community issues. So this was a big change. Uh, This was a big recognition that the world has changed, uh, tourism in Hawaii has changed. We have to see how it's going to play out. And you are currently then on the HUI, on the transition team that uh, CNHA has created. Is there anything that you want to say just about this working group and why it was created? Well, I can't speak for anyone else, but I can tell you how I was approached, and that was uh, if uh, if the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement and their HUI, the Kilohana uh, Collaborative, if they succeed in winning the bid, would you be willing to help them get set up and, and uh, advise them? So it was uh, it was conditional upon them uh, getting the bid. If they didn't get the bid, I had no involvement with them. But if they do get the bid, it would behoove all of us to have them get counsel from people who can uh, help them succeed. So that's why you joined, because you felt that you had something to offer and you wanted to sit at the table. I care deeply about this destination. I care deeply about Hawaii, and I care deeply about it succeeding in tourism. So, yes, if somebody's got a contract to 
to uh, manage the destination and to do marketing to the U.S., and I can help when they have that contract. I, I would certainly want to be at the table. You know, I've heard that this could be a very bold move, or it might be a disaster from where you sit. I mean, we, we are kind of at a crossroads here. Well, we we made a decision to look at change uh, when we adopted the when HTA adopted the 2020 strategic plan. So that was the first signal that there's going to be change. And if there's going to be change, there's going to be discomfort with change. And we just have to manage that so that we minimize the potential for what you described as disaster, but maximize the potential that we can we can really succeed in getting to this integrated uh, view of more, of destination management, and we can get to the point where where uh, tourism can coexist with the uh, community and and contribute economically without affecting our our quality of life. And if that's the main goal that we've set forth on, then the question is uh, who best can do it? Yes. And that's why you do an RFP. And that's why you put a lot of uh, requirements in the RFP to demonstrate that you're able to do that based upon the specifications that are in the uh, RFP. That was Frank Haas with Marketing Management, Inc., who's one of the members of a transition team of the Kilohana Collective. It is a hui under the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, the latest winning bidder on a $34 million North American marketing and destination management contract. More on the contract issue coming up. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Your Backyard Quiz is next. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavaiti. In our historical backyard quiz, we are searching for a place built between 1828 and 1832 for the Protestant mission. It was the first stone church in Hawaii and able to seat nearly 3,000 people. However, it has been rebuilt four times to repair wind, storm, and fire damage, with the last uh, rebuilt in 1953. Located in West Maui, this church is perhaps better known for its famous cemetery. It is the resting place for many famous Hawaiian leaders and early missionaries. The oldest Christian gravestone dating back to 1829 can be found here. So what historical church and cemetery are we describing, and what is the site called now? Uh, call 808-941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NareedHawaii.com. Hawaii and the Korean Peninsula don't seem to have a shared history, but writer Joseph Hahn disagrees. I wanted to write a novel that show how war is ever-present, how it impacts generations. How U.S. imperialism haunts the present. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School.
information around the awarding of the tourism contract has been slow to become public. We heard earlier this week about how two members whose names were included in the bid proposals and whose involvement may have been overstated. Jerry Gibson of the Hawaii Hotel Alliance told HPR this week that he was surprised to see his name in the most recent proposal. He did say while he met with Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement CEO Kohia Lewis for an hour, He said it wasn't mentioned that his name would be included in the bid. A second tourism executive, retired Xterra CEO Tom Kiley, said that uh, that was his his experience during the first round of the request for proposals. We talked to Kiley this morning, and he believes that this contract is too important. Uh, He says he's calling for a reset. Kiley said he went back over his emails to refresh his memory of what had transpired. How did you find out that your name was submitted as part of this first proposal? Okay, I'm going to read to you the very short email on January 27 that goes to one of the leaders of the group. And it starts this way. In a light conversation with an HTA-affiliated person, they referenced that, quote, ITK and part of the Botticelli group bidding on an HTA contract. I corrected the person and said I am not affiliated with any group, and this person commented that my name was in some of the materials presented for HTA consideration. Next paragraph, short one. A few months ago, you asked if I might advise from time to time a group redestination marketing, and of course I said sure. What I, what I did not agree to was the use of my name or any reference or an affiliation with any group in any official way or in any presentation for a contract award. My request is that you remove my name and any mention of me in any materials or discussions uh, to any potential uh, contracts, whether they be government agencies or private companies. Same day, I got a response. I did a research of our proposal, which confirmed that your name was not included, and I certainly didn't mention it. I'll ask if anyone else made a reference to it, but that was not intended. Last uh, conversation that I've had with that person, and um, so there it's pretty clear. Was your name taken out? I haven't seen any of the materials, uh, but uh, it uh, it was uh, relayed to me that uh, my name and my professional uh, background were in the first RFP, which would have been earlier this year, I guess. And so we have the second RFP, and the award did go to the council. Uh, you know, the council had uh, lodged a protest when it lost the first time around, and the RFP mm-hmm. was rewritten. What do you think ought to be done? I think they ought to throw the... Uh, throw the contract presentation out uh, and void it because it is unfair and untrue. I would recommend that uh, HBC be given at least a one-year extension. Let the air clear on this whole thing. If it goes forward with the new group, with what you're finding out, this is not going to end. Uh, I mean, and when the, uh, the, uh, the, the Hawaii state uh, government goes back into session, this will be a big topic. So if it goes forward, it will be bad for everyone, especially the people of Hawaii that depend upon uh, this industry and all of the other implications of tourism that need to be uh, dealt with uh, in, in the coming years. I mean, this is a big contract, and it's very important yeah. to the future of our economic engine. Right. And, uh, you know, HTA could not on its own approve a contract of, let's say, hundreds of millions of dollars that goes into the future. Uh, this would need approval of DBEDT, and possibly even, I would think, uh, the governor would have to uh, say, yeah, I, uh, you know, I approve $100 million for this contract. So, you know, who is, is culpable in this, this thing? That, this is, that's where it's, it should be thrown out because it's ugly on all sides. Did DBEDT approve this? Did the governor know about this? It goes pretty deep. Or high up, however, you, in my my guesswork that that is. But I know that I know I feel that HDA could not approve a uh, tens and hundreds of millions of dollar contract without uh, the review and stamp of approval of DBEDT. We won't know until next week if uh, the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau will lodge a protest o- over this award. You're a retired, you know, travel ex- executive. I mean, I don't know. I guess you don't have a bone to pick. You know. Uh, over what happens with this, right? I don't know if you've got any more skin in the game at this point. No, zero. It's a a common sense thing. If any of us uh, entered into a a contract or agreement or uh, anything that is a little different when we were led to believe, we'd say, hold on, let's stop right here uh, and let's either put this on hold or not go forward. And we've all done that in our lives from time to time, from simple things to important things. It's the common sense thing to do. 
there's a lot of uh, uh, bad stuff on this. And uh, from my perspective, with no axe to grind, I would just throw it out or at the very least say delay for an entire year and do the process over again and and have every, every, every ounce of every proposal checked and rechecked and verified. There are some who might think that, you know, this is a golden opportunity to uh, have fresh eyes on our situation, you know, and, and how we manage over tourism and that to have the an organization, you know, that has a track record with uh, with large federal contracts, uh, that that they might be, you know, uh, suited for this just because of their uh, connection to the Native Hawaiian community. Do you think that this would be an opportunity to reset and see if if we can do better? I think that uh, every organization should uh, uh, raise that question to itself every single year. I mean, I, I did it in my businesses with our Xterra events, with our TV shows, always to say, can we do better? I don't know anything about, I, uh, I uh, do know what HVCB does for a living, and they do marketing and promotion of the state, generally. Uh, I don't know what the other group does. And so you said the other group has uh, experience with contracts with government agencies. Does the other group, and I don't know, have experience in day-to-day marketing the destination of Hawaii, which probably has one of the, if not the best, one of the best reputations for leisure travel in the world. So if you're going to make a 180-degree change on anything, whether it be tourism, whether it be how you paint your house, you better be pretty sure the odds would be heavily in your favor that that 180-degree swing would be the right move. If it's being done for other purposes, like, gee, maybe we should try something different, that's not good enough when you're talking about the, uh, the major industry in the state outside of uh, government and military. I mean, it's a 180-degree change from something that's been doing pretty good. Now, should some parts of the, the HTA's mandate be how are the, the airports handled, how are the roads handled, how are we handling natural resources, how are we handling the beaches, all of those things uh, may be outside and probably are outside the purview of HVCB. Uh, so I'm talking about really the, the marketing of, of the state, the product oversight of the state, all those things I just mentioned. Uh, that could go to any one of any number of other groups. Should it be DLNR? Should it be uh, airports division? Those are, are, to me, are really bigger issues because from my perspective, all marketing starts with product development. You know, if you were building a new hotel, a new restaurant, a new resort, you'd start with product development. Well, if you zero in on the product development aspects of Hawaii, we have a lot of things that need to be cleaned up. Yesterday's newspaper showed the parking problems at Lanikai. Some people visiting with us uh, here from McKenna talking about the oversaturation of people in that McKenna area. So these are issues well outside of of marketing that HVCB does. Uh, And should those pieces be assigned to other uh, groups? Sure, absolutely. But should the marketing of the state be assigned to a group that's unproven? Uh, I said that risk is too high. Well, you know, we're hearing that this group has assembled a team that that now has some experience in, in marketing and but there are some concerns that the council does not have a permanent team. That, that sounds like a patchwork thing put together to make a proposal. That's what it is. Very specifically, it's a patchwork group put to, or of names put together to make a proposal. Has that patchwork group ever worked together and had a, a history of success? From what I've read, they haven't worked together and therefore don't have a history of success. If you're going to assign hundreds of millions of dollars to a group, you better be sure that they have a track record of success. Now, then you say, well, what's the track record of success of HBCB? Well, it's only been around for 100-plus years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, it can be argued we have too many tourists in a day. And so many places like Venice and, and uh, Machu Picchu are dealing with this also. But essentially, if their mandate of HVCB was to uh, promote the islands of of Hawaii as a great vacation destination, they have a really good history of success. So on one hand, you have a history of success in the marketing arena. And on the other hand, you have a patchwork uh, quilt of names for marketing. I I don't like maybes. I kind of like track records and sure things. That was retired Exterra Executive Tom Kiley talking to us about 
his experience during the first round for the request for proposals. We called Stryker Weiner, a public relations firm handling the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, for comment, but it said it was difficult because we are still in the protest period. Misunderstanding, overreach, stay tuned. Lucilla Beats Reality Check segment today has a story about the confirmation of a judicial nominee. Reporter Blaze Level joins us this morning. Hi, Blaze. Hi, Blaze. Are you there? Hey, Catherine. I'm here. Yes. So yeah. the story is a little <laughs> unusual because you don't hear um, a lot of controversy generally when someone is um, nominated as a judge. Yeah, you don't. This is a, really a rare instance where, you know, a judicial nominee is facing pushback. I mean, a few years ago, we saw Supreme Court Justice Mike Wilson. He faced allegations of sexual assault during his confirmation hearings. Last year, Dan Gluck, he used to head up the Ethics Commission, was appointed to the Intermediate Court of Appeals. His nomination was rejected by the Senate and opponents, you, you know, to his uh, candidacy were calling for more diversity on the judiciary. Uh, yesterday, we saw, you, you know, another kind of rare stir in these judicial nominations. In this case, um, there is an attorney, a defense attorney from Kauai named Gregory Myers, and he's being appointed to a judgeship on Kauai. But he's facing accusations of witness tampering from uh, a Kauai deputy prosecutor whose case kind of got torpedoed after he uh, lost a witness statement. And just to back up, this case all stems from an incident that happened in, in December. Um, so this attorney, Gregory Myers, his, his client was arrested. And shortly after, his client comes to him uh, with what's called the complaining witness on the phone. You could consider that the victim. And, you know, Myers, he's an attorney. He takes notes. He's going to type this all up in an email to his client. And uh, shortly after that, his client comes with a handwritten statement from that witness, which was apparently recanting a statement he made earlier that led to the client's arrest. Uh, I'd like to point out that charges were never filed against Myers as his client. And Myers turned that written statement over to the police uh, I'm sorry, to the prosecutor's office. And this all happened months ago. But on Monday, Deputy Prosecutor Robert Christensen from Kauai filed a complaint with the state office that oversees lawyers. And this is where this whole conflict kind of really boiled up this week. That's the Office of Disciplinary Counsel, right? Yes, that's ODC. And uh, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, what happens? I mean, how does this work? So uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, that's the panel of senators that vets all the judicial nominations in the state. They heard uh, from a number of public testifiers yesterday. Uh, the Kauai prosecutor was the only one who testified in opposition. Everyone else at that hearing, you know, supported Myers' nomination. A lot of them were defense attorneys. They say that what happened in Myers's case it happens all the time it's normal for a defense attorney to talk to prosecutors witnesses and they're required to turn over statements that might contradict earlier statements made one lawyer said that it's their ethical obligation to do so another attorney said she you know she doesn't want to have to be looking over her shoulder over her back wondering if a government lawyer is going to file a complaint you know against her for advocating for her client so yeah so one on one hand you know, uh, did Myers follow proper procedure? Um, but it, it is unusual because this thing is so recent. It, exactly. And, and that's the point that the committee chairman, Senator Carl Rhodes, made uh, to me in an interview we had yesterday. You know, he said, uh, on the one hand, it's kind of awkward to put through a candidate who has an open complaint against him and possibly an open investigation against him. But on the other hand, they don't want to reject his nomination because that might send the message that, you know, if you see someone you don't like and you want to torpedo their nomination, then you just go file a complaint against them because all these, you know, stuff might get kicked up. And does anybody remember a situation like this happening? <laughs> I can't remember. Anything. No, no, not not really. Um the, the the other senators yesterday during the committee were kind of baffled because they never saw um, you know a situation where there's such a where there's a complaint filed so late into the nomination process. And so, can a judge be disciplined? 
Yes. Yeah, so work? even if Myers becomes a judge, um, he and, and you know, let's just say the ODC complaint, they they find some kind of violation, the court system can still discipline him for actions he took as an attorney, and that that goes for any attorney that wants to become a judge. And so, um, where are we at on the on the on the vote on this thing? How does that work? Because the committee met yesterday. Right. So they'll make their recommendation on Monday, and Myers, along with two other uh, judicial nominees, they'll, they'll face the full 25-member Senate on Tuesday. Okay. So that that certainly is one to to uh, to watch. Uh, but is he the only judge that's up for um, a vote? Uh, no. Two others, Joanna Sokolo and Jill Hasegawa, both are nominees for the family court on the Big Island. Okay. But no controversy on those cases. None on either of them. All right. Okay, but thanks so much, Blaze. Thank you. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. You can read his full story. Go to civilbeat.org. When our listeners have comments or questions about interviews that we air, they often leave messages on our talkback line or they send us an email to our uh, talkback inbox. And from time to time, we share those messages on the air with you. After our segment on Hawaii's oil dependence, Thomas Galeoto wrote, Honolulu is guilty of the most egregious pollution. It has been said that the prosperity of the city makes the city attractive, which in turn contributes to even greater prosperity. Because of its location, the city knows only the most diluted air pollution, as well as its trade winds that offer a welcoming relief from tropical humidity. If the residents of Honolulu were to breathe all the pollution they demand to be produced by the use of jet aircraft, military bases, hotel operations, imported food, infrastructure, entertainment, and consumer items, they would reconsider life in Honolulu, end quote. And Jamie Reed emailed us after last week's segment on vaccines uh, for kids. Uh, Glad to hear that Kiki vaccines under five would be given in a doctor's office. My experience with the vaccination of my eight-year-old at Walmart was chaotic and miserable. The uh, uh, pharmacies are not often available enough uh, to uh, monitor side effects. And here's a voicemail that we disc- after we discussed a new guidebook about Mark Twain's Hawaii. Aloha, Catherine. This is Nikilananda calling from Huelo on the North Shore of Maui. And you were just having a conversation with an author from Maui regarding Mark Twain. And you made a comment about not understanding why so many people back into parking stalls. Well, the reality is one quarter of all accidents happen when people are backing out of a parking place. So if you look at the number of people who back in, it's probably way less than half. However, the reason people do it is because it's much safer. Thank you for that. And we received this email. Aloha talk back. Most days I listen to the conversation. Today, two things popped up, limiting renewable resources to a percent point and considering burning trees for energy just stinks to the heavens in more ways than one. In the discussion over the new police chief cleaning up the department appears to be a side issue. Really, the statement by Shopo, especially the lack of focus on this particular issue, is disturbing. In both cases, the practice of greed, hubris, deceit, and lies is most likely to continue unbridled. The citizens are neither calmed or deceived by this, I hope. Keep up the good good work conversation. Aloha, Dieter. Thanks for that feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 792-8217. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Meet the legendary Gudrid the Far Traveler. She straddled the pagan world, the Christian world. She was renowned for her goodness and wisdom. Pick your favorite town in the Netherlands. Art is so alive in that city. There's statues everywhere, a lot of great little galleries. 
and find a warm welcome in Nicaragua. People can have a real takeaway when they come to Nicaragua. On the next Travel with Rick Steves. Beginning Sunday at noon, following New Dimensions. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name the first stone church built in the islands. It's located in West Maui. can seat nearly 3,000 people. It has been rebuilt four times. Waiola Church and Cemetery is the answer we were looking for. But if Waina'e Church and Cemetery came to mind, well, you're still correct. The site is the resting place of many renowned Hawaiian leaders, as well as some of the early missionaries. Now known as Waiola Church and Cemetery, these sacred grounds welcome any interested and respectful visitors. Congrats to our winner today, Malia from Honolulu. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you're a fan of local music, you've probably heard of Mana'o Company, and you've probably heard of their enduring, award-winning song, Spread a Little Aloha. Manao Company's lead singer, Kaulana Pakele, passed away unexpectedly two years ago, but his spirit and his legacy endures in his son, Dylan. Dylan just released his debut album entitled Faith this year. In it, he showcases his love for island reggae that is both influenced by his father's artistry as well as other unique experiences he brought into the recording studio. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Dylan in our studio recently to talk about his music and his father's legacy. What's the earliest memory that you have of your dad playing music? I just have, like, my memories of him playing music. My earliest memories is when going to, like, concerts at, like, the show and, like, Birthday Bash. And I remember seeing him up on the stage. That's, like, literally the last thing I think of in my head right now. But I know, you know, I I feel like I have more memories, but that's, that's the one that's popping up in my head right now. When you were young and you saw your dad up on the stage, was it just your dad playing music or did you have like an idea that he was somebody in the music scene? Honestly, I never really did like look at my dad that way. Like I've, all my whole life, I've always just like, oh, that's dad and yeah. he's singing music. Your dad was first a member of Ehukai, mm-hmm. and they were best known for Moloka'i Slide, which won them two Nahoku Hanohano Awards in the 90s. that song that's one of those songs that i remember listening to on the mainland when i was living there and that kept me connected to home and then he joined Manao company in the early 2000s and won more hokus for the song spread a little aloha can you talk about your dad's musicianship how did he learn to play what who were some of his influences man i can say it right off of the bat like i know that from my mom and talking story with my dad in the past that Manao company was like his dream band to play with and like that was one of his biggest influences and so to for him to have been to play with them he literally was playing with one of his biggest influences and then to win two hokus for a song that is very popular even today he literally his last interview that is on file i I think it was with uncle billy v and literally that was what he said in the video he had his grandson in his hand kayolana my brother's son and long story short, he literally said that in the video. He said, I'm living the dream. And that was the last interview before he passed. Wow. And it was at Manao's 30th year anniversary. That's right. That's right. Yes. So we wow. literally have that video. And every time I watch it, just literally brought that video to my head right now. So now transitioning from your dad to you now, you're a musician. How did your dad instill his interest and love for music in you? 
honestly, it wasn't until I went up to school in Nebraska mm-hmm. for college. And my whole life, I didn't really love music the way that I love it now until I was like away from the music. Yeah. When I went to Nebraska, for me, that's what made me fall in love with music because not everybody listened to music the same way here in mm-hmm. Hawaii. And that was something for me that I started pursuing music up there. I wanted to play basketball. Long story short, it didn't work out. So I found somebody with a studio up there. And I started recording music up there. And then I was like halfway through the semester. I was like, wait, why am I doing music up here? I can do music in Hawaii. My dad does music. And it was at that moment that once I wanted to do that, we started recording a song. My song, Forgive Me, mm-hmm. was literally from that moment on we did that. Please forgive me for what I've done. I swear I won't do it again. Then my father had us do a consistent gig at Moani's in Kapolei, and that's where it started for us. For me, having my dad bring us up on stage, literally for me, like if that didn't happen, I don't know if I would have had the confidence to do music now because it was that in those building early building stages that dad prepared us for this, for singing music now. You said that when you were in Nebraska, the people there didn't really listen to music the way we do. Can you kind of elaborate on what you meant by that? Like music wasn't like a priority up there. Music over here, it brings us together. It defines who we are. It's our identity. Well, for me personally, I can, without music, I don't know where I'd be. But up there, I missed that vibe of like Kanikopila, like Mm. everybody sitting in a circle and uh, hey, pass around the ukulele. Up there in Nebraska, it wasn't something where guys sang. It was a girl thing, kind of, more more than like being, like, guy and girl. So when I would go up there, I'd bring my ukulele, and I'd start playing music. Everybody's like, what? There's a guy that sings? Why is he singing? And it just was like, what do you mean? Everybody sings in Hawaii. All the guys play ukulele, you know? Right. So that was something for me, like, that was just crazy. Was there any kind of new music that you listened to when you had moved away that you feel has kind of filtered down into your music? I wouldn't say personally like music that I want to perform, but a lot of music that was really big up there was yeah. reggaeton. I I'd never really listened to like J Balvin and to, uh, was it Bad Bunny? Or wait, is it Bad Bunny? Yes, I think that's his name. Those two artists are people that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And then when I lived up there, there was, there was a lot of people that listened to them. So it's like reggaeton music. I never really did listen to reggaeton music and it was really big up there. Wow. Spanish music. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about your EP. I know you recently recorded a six-song EP titled Faith, right? Yes. As a tribute to your dad, who passed away unexpectedly two years ago. Can you talk about your album and talk about the tracks? Can you tell us what the names, what the titles of the tracks are? So I have six songs on this EP. Two of the songs are actually songs that are already out, which is this my song Forgive Me and my other song Nothing Now. But there's four new songs. And those four new songs is one's called Alone. Uh, another one's called Is Love. Another song's called Trusted Man. And another song's called Heaven in the Sky. But I kind of wanted to give a little story behind that because there's a story behind the title of the songs and why they're titled the way that it is. There's three reasons why I called this EP Faith. One, I wanted to dedicate this EP to my niece who's now in heaven. Um, her name is Faith. And I wanted to dedicate this album to her. And uh, two, I found out that... After dad passed, I never knew what my name meant. Like Dylan, I never knew, like, why do my siblings have Hawaiian names and then I don't have a Hawaiian name? So I asked mom and I, and she said that, um, long story short, that my name is Dylan and it means faithful in Irish. And I was like, wow, I came up with faith. And then I found that out after, you know, so I was like, what connected? And three, the titles of the songs are actually the acronyms of faith. So for, oh. forgive me stands for is for F, A is for alone, I is for is love. That's all the titles of the songs. And basically, all of these songs are personal situations that it took faith for me to get out of. And I wanted to share that with everybody and let them know like, hey, these are things I went through, but this is me. This is how I got out of it. Or this was me in the situation and this is me now. So I just wanted to share those personal situations and let people know that they're not alone. If you had to describe your musical style, mm. what would you say your style was? Uh, I got to say, first of all, I love reggae. Yeah. Like, I love, if I had to get more specific, I love island reggae. I love roots reggae. 
I just love reggae in general. But there is one song that's on this EP that isn't reggae. It's an R&B song, uh, neo soul R&B, and it's a song called "Is Love." I tried to write it in reggae and it just didn't it didn't fit. And so I was like, oh, let's try something else. I took it to, if you guys know Rich Gideon, he helped me to figure out the chords and basically without him, and that song wouldn't have even been possible chord-wise. But he, literally, we turned it into something else and then we took it to Emo Garza and it just fit more perfectly as an R&B song more than a reggae song. So it is my first R&B song that I'll be coming out with. I think many people know that music can sometimes help us heal and get mm -hmm. through hard times. Sure. How did your songwriting process and your recording process, how did that affect your grieving process? It was less of like me, but more of like as a collective, as our whole family. Yeah. Like being able to put the music out for us is like ever since dad passed, the one word that just keeps popping up in my mind is the word legacy. And for me, it's like, okay, there's all kinds of ways that we can make sure that dad's legacy keeps moving. But this is also a key part is like making the music keep it going. And as we did each song for this EP, it was every time was a battle in a different way that we had to overcome. We definitely cried in the studio for, for certain things. And there's actually one of the songs on this EP is really cool uh, because it has my dad's vocals in the song. Wow. And I share that because it was like, it was a really hard process to go through. My song, Forgive Me, that I have out already, and also that's going to be remastered on this, this project, Forgive Me has my dad's vocals. So we thought it was the last song, but we actually have another song that has his vocals in it. And our, the title of this song is called Heaven in the Sky. Long story short, his all of his harmonies are a part of the song, and it's, this is the last song that we have with his vocals. And so it makes this project even more special just to have his vocals on it you know for, yeah. for specifically that song it's heavy and so that I guess that can answer for me like the process of going through this was it was healing not just for me but for everybody that was around us my mom yeah. for my sister for my brother my siblings our friends our families anybody that was connected to dad I'm excited for them to hear this because there was a lot of work and tears and that just went into this project wow that's going to be great I read somewhere that your dad was a gifted mimic. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, I read that he could do impressions of musicians like Louis Armstrong, mm -hmm. Bob Dylan, Auntie Genoa, mm -hmm. Stitch. Stitch. He did Stitch. Yeah. Any, any chance any of that talent passed on to you? Oh, man. It's something that like I, I want to learn, and I watch his videos uh -huh. all the time on YouTube. I still got to work on it, but <laughs> eventually there is some songs that I like, I would love to try yeah. and sing that he would do, but maybe one day. Yeah. Oh, that's classic. In the works, in the works. Yeah. Oh man, that'd be pretty cool to see. Is there a particular musical trait or quirk that you have that you got from your dad or that people have said to you reminds them of your dad? There is a specific song and there's another thing, but I'll share the song. I think Molokai Slide is a song that I feel like I get comments on sometimes that people are like, oh, you sound like your dad. And and that that's that's been a song for me as a specific that people have brought up. But something that I think about is the dad was so talented in connecting with the crowd. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I aspire to do. And I study him a lot. And I've been studying him when he was here and even now watching him on YouTube. And I feel like that's something that I want to work on and be get better at. And it's something that I want to follow in his footsteps is learning how to connect with the crowd and learning how to sing the right song. Should it be an upbeat song? Should it be a slow song? Should it be the perfect song to hit that crowd that's in front of you right now? And I feel like that's something that dad was good at that I want to get better at. But that's something I uh, want to follow in his footsteps with is connecting with the crowd. Is there anything else you wanted to share with listeners? My thing that I would want to say to anybody that's listening to this right now is if you have a dream to go and achieve it, it's not impossible. It might have some bumps in the road that you got to get over, but it's not impossible. 
And I want this project to be a reminder that not everything's going to be perfect on your journey. There's going to be things in the road that will come up, but later on could be used as a lesson or a message for somebody else to learn from. And that's what this Faith EP is about. I just want to encourage you guys to follow your dreams. Love it. Thanks so much for your time, man. Of course. Mahalo. That was local musician Dylan Pichele talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Dylan's debut album, Faith, is available to purchase and stream online now. That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we continue to explore innovation in sustainable aviation. What are your thoughts? Record your comments, call our Talkback line, post your comments on Facebook, or write to us at Talkback. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of the HPR website. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. John DeMello provided our uh, backyard intro, and Gypsy 808 recorded our theme music. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.